Welcome to this Digest edition of the Herald Scotland from the 23rd of February to the 8th of March 2018. Read by volunteers at Cune Review Print Speaking to the Blind at our studios in the Bishopbriggs Media Centre. Due to the inclement weather conditions last week, this tape will cover the past two weeks of news. Coming up on Side 1. Rangers use Ibrox property, including Wi-Fi and TV screens, as security over £3 million funding. This article by Martin Williams. This article from the Glasgow Herald, Thursday the 8th of March. News. Suspended NHS 5 boss Scott McLean, alleged to have given unfair promotion to lover Shelley Marshall. This is an exclusive by Helen McCardo, health correspondent. Mary Black, believed to be first MP to use the C-word as she reveals torrent of online abuse in Commons debates. Labour to formally commit to customs union post-Brexit. This article by Alistair Grant. Time running out for Theresa May to get Nicola Sturgeon on side with Brexit Bill. An article by Michael Settle... Nicola Sturgeon interview. Even as First Minister, men try to explain politics to me. Bankery businessman Mike Wilson gets £40 million from sale of Yukos subsea systems. Miller and Bryce defies tough conditions to build in the West. This article by Scott Wright. This article from the Herald on Monday the 26th of February 2018. News. Rangers use Ibrox property, including Wi-Fi and TV screens, as security over £3 million funding. This article by Martin Williams. Rangers has agreed to place property within Ibrox, including the Wi-Fi system and the stadium TV screens, as security over a £3 million funding facility. It had been known that the Manchester-based financiers, Close Leasing, who have offered the working capital, had insured the funding against the club's Edmiston House and Albion Car Park properties, but now it has emerged that the financial protection required by Close to guarantee Rangers' performance on its debt obligation has been widened to include movable assets within Ibrox. They include the stadium catering outlets, said to be worth £1.567 million, and Ibrox Public Addressed Systems, valued at £556,000, the Bowl TV, £432,000, and the Wi-Fi System, £675,000. The club has previously indicated that it would be the first credit facility since Sir David Murray sold Rangers to Craig White in 2011. The value of all the assets being used as collateral for the funds is estimated to be £5.53 million and was set up to cover for any possible extra costs and interests on any default. The Albion car park, which is directly opposite Ibrox and at one time had space for 1,200 cars, has been valued for at £1.5 million according to new documents relating to the funding deal. Edmondston House, which stands derelict and was formerly home to Rangers FC Social Club and Ticket Office, which has also been put up as collateral for the funds, was valued at £800,000. Four years ago, the building in the car park had been part of a redevelopment plan suggested by previous club owners that never materialised. 
The deal has come about as the club struggled to get a banking facility since the liquidation of the so-called Rangers Old Co. RFC 2012 PLC in October 2012. The board had said they were faced with a multi-million pound shortfall for this season and next season. A list of conditions that have to be met include keeping the assets in good order and, where appropriate, good working order, except in relation to Edmiston House, which is to be kept and maintained in a fair condition. The assets within Ibrox that are on the line is property that can be lifted up and taken away and does not include any part of the fabric of Ibrox. Rangers Managing Director Stuart Robertson said after announcing the facility earlier this month that it will allow the club greater financial flexibility, another key step towards normalising the business. Rangers have been relying on soft loans from the club's directors since Dave King won control at an extraordinary general meeting in March 2015. Mr King, the club chairman, had admitted that the loans were necessary to keep the club running due to the lack of a credit facility. The latest operating company financial report signed off in November showed the business was passed as a going concern while accepting they would require at least £4 million additional funding by the end of this season in order to meet liabilities as they fall due. Further funding of £3.2 million was forecast to be needed next season, although the board says the final amount was dependent on football performance and whether they qualify for lucrative European football participation. The board said it had discussed the club's forecast cash shortfall and reached agreement with Mr King's new Oasis Asset Limited company to provide additional loans as necessary. There were interest-free unsecured loans amounting to £15.9 million, of which £6.7 million is owed to Mr King's company. Dave King and other investors had agreed to extend their existing loan facilities to July next year. The board said at the time that it was satisfied that those parties will continue to provide financial support to the company and satisfied themselves to the validity of the undertakings. And directors acknowledged that without the assurances, then a material uncertainty would exist which may cast doubt over the company's ability to continue as a going concern. The board said that financial support committed before the new credit facility was sought more than covers the projected shortfall for this season and beyond. Mr Robertson had insisted there was no risk of club chairman David King and his fellow investors withdrawing their backing when announcing the new funding facility. Dave and the other investors remain firmly behind the club. The contingency is still there if we need money for a particular project or to head into the transfer market in the summer, he said. A £30 million business with no bank facilities is very, very unusual. It is not the first time Rangers have been linked with close. According to administrator's documents, close leasing had been owed £1.6 million by the Rangers' old co, having had a previous security when it fell into insolvency nearly six years ago. Former owner Craig White had sold future earnings from matchday catering at Ibrox to close to pay for the lease of kitchen equipment. Shareholders cleared the way for fresh investment in Rangers last November when they backed moves for a new share issue at the club's AGM. Edmiston House and Albion Car Park have previously been put up as insurance for Rangers financing under the previous regime at Ibrox. Three years ago, Rangers announced they had accepted a £10 million loan offer from Mike Ashley Sports Direct in return for a number of conditions including security over Murray Park Training Ground, the Albion Car Park and Edmiston House. The previous year, Laxey Partners announced that it had used the assets as security for a £1 million loan.
the club had just six months to repay the loan. This article by Martin Williams. This article from the Glasgow Herald, Thursday the 8th of March. News. Suspended NHS Fife boss Scott McLean, alleged to have given unfair promotion to lover Shelley Marshall. This is an exclusive by Helen McCardo, health correspondent. An NHS executive has been suspended for allegedly promoting his mistress to a high-paid job within his department, the Herald can reveal. Professor Scott McLean, Chief Operations Officer at NHS Fife, is being investigated over claims that Shelley Marshall was recruited to a secondment post within the Acute Services Division at a time when the pair were having a secret love affair. Ms Marshall, a 38-year-old mother of two, was promoted from the position of Management Accountant at NHS Fife to Performance Management Coordinator in August 2015, a job which is said to have carried a substantial pay rise. Her promotion is said to have angered colleagues who felt snubbed by her promotion. The Herald previously revealed that Mr McLean, 42, who had been COO in charge of acute services since 2015, had been suspended on full pay in November 2017, pending the outcome of a probe into alleged misconduct. He remains on gardening leave. A social media profile on the website LinkedIn posted by Ms Marshall states that the purpose of her role, which began as a six-month secondment, is to facilitate performance reporting on specific areas within the Acute Services Division and enable the Chief Operating Officer to measure service performance against agreed standards. The Herald understands that the pair first struck up a romantic relationship while both were studying for degrees in business administration. Both were married at the time, but Mr McLean is understood to have left his wife last year and Ms Marshall, whose married name was Shelley Dixon, also split from her husband last summer. The reason for Mr McLean's four-month absence has never been disclosed to members of the NHS Five board, who were simply told he was on long-term leave. The post of Chief Operating Officer is being filled in the interim by Jan Gardner, NHF 5's Director of Planning and Strategic Partnerships. The Health Board is scheduled to hold its next public meeting on March the 14th. Mr McLean, who is an honorary professor at the University of St Andrews School of Medicine, joined NHS Fife in 2013, initially as the Executive Director of Nursing. He was subsequently promoted to COO, Acute Services, in 2015, a post which carries a salary of between £74,000 and £100,000. Mr McLean is a qualified nurse who studied at the University of Aberdeen, Dundee, graduating in 1995. He went on to work as a nurse at the Victoria Hospital in Kirkcaldy, Fife, uh, then for NHS Lothian. In 2006, while employed as a senior cardiology nurse at the Royal Infirmary of Edinburgh, he was presented with a British Heart Foundation Excellence Award for his role in pioneering a life-saving scheme which trained paramedics to administer clot-busting drugs to heart attack patients before they were admitted to hospital. He went on to work in Ireland 
and then as the Director of Nursing and Governance for Barts Health NHS Trust in London, before returning to NHS Fife. Both Mr McLean and Ms Marshall were approached for comment, but neither responded. A spokesman for NHS Fife said details of the investigation were confidential and they could not comment on individual staff matters. Barbara Ann Nelson, the Health Board's Director of Workforce, previously said NHS Fife has a legal responsibility to protect the privacy of its employees and it is therefore unable to comment on matters relating to individual staff members, past or present. There have been a number of shake-ups at senior level in NHS Fife in recent years. Former Chief Executive John Wilson stepped down due to ill health in October 2014 and was temporarily replaced by Brian Montgomery. However, Dr Montgomery also took early retirement in 2015 and since June 2015, the post of Chief Executive has been held by Paul Hawkins, previously Chief Operating Officer at Highwell Da University Health Board in Wales. The Herald Scotland, Wednesday the 7th of March 2018, News Section. Mary Black believed to be first MP to use the C-word as she reveals torrent of online abuse in Commons debates. This article by UK political editor Michael Settle. Please note, this article contains uncensored strong language throughout. The SNP's Mary Black has spoken graphically of the scale of misogynistic abuse she has faced online, reading out in Parliament the insults aimed at her, which included the C-word. The Paisley and Renfrewshire South MP said she was regularly called a wee boy and told she wore her dad's suits, noting how she and her friends laughed about the scale of insults. But, speaking during a parliamentary debate on misogyny on the eve of International Women's Day, she told MPs, I struggle to see any joke in being systematically called a dyke, a rug muncher, a slut, a whore, a scruffy bint. I've been told you can't put lipstick on a pig, let the dirty bitch eat shit and die. I could soften some of this by talking about the C-word, but the reality is there is no softening when you're targeted with these words and you're left reading them on the screen every day, day in, day out. She needs a kick in the C, star, star, star. Guttural, C, star, star, star. Ugly, C, star, star, star. We animal, C, star, star, star. There's no softening just how sexualised and misogynistic the abuse is, explained the nationalist backbencher. Ms Black, at 23, still the youngest MP at Westminster, said she received a comment from a man she had never heard of before, which said, I've pumped some ugly birds in my time, but I just wouldn't. She went on in Westminster Hall, the second debating chamber in the Commons. I've been assured multiple times that I don't have to worry, because I'm so ugly that no one would want to rape me. All these insults have been tailored to me because I am a woman. Ms Black said it was not simply a few bad anonymous people on Twitter, adding, but it's not. This is everyday, common language. She said she felt uncomfortable reading out the insults, adding, Yet there are people who feel comfortable flinging these words around every day. When it goes unchallenged, it becomes normalised. And when it becomes normalised, it creates an environment that allows women to be abused, ranging from a whole spectrum, insisted Ms Black. The MP also referred to US President Donald Trump, after noting how she regularly saw men on Facebook talking about getting pussy, adding, 
Should we really actually be expecting any better, given the man sitting in the Oval Office thinks it's OK to grab a woman by the pussy and face no consequences? She stressed how there needed to be reflection on what happened in Parliament, with the full extent of abuse and danger women face on a daily basis only beginning to be realised. Only a few weeks ago, I was physically pressed up against an MP in the voting lobby who's accused of sexual misconduct because there's so little room. Now, I don't think that's normal, and it's fair to say that that's something maybe we should be looking at, something that we should be talking about, because I'm blessed in that I have the same rights and influence as any other elected man in this place. But what about the female staff in here who don't, added Miss Black. This article was by UK political editor Michael Settle. This article from the Herald on Monday the 26th of February 2018. Politics. Labour to formally commit to customs union post-Brexit. This article by Alistair Grant. Labour will back entering a customs union with the European Union after Brexit as it pledged to form a new and strong relationship with the single market. In a major speech today, Jeremy Corbyn is expected to announce a shift in policy that will put clear distance between his party and the Conservatives. It comes as a standoff between the Scottish and UK governments over a so-called Brexit power grab intensified ahead of Theresa May's visit to Scotland later this week. Mrs May's deputy, David Liddington, accused the SNP of seeking to split the country, leaving the UK's economy disjointed. Mr Liddington said there was now a presumption that more than 100 devolved powers would return to Holyrood from Brussels after Brexit, but insisted some would continue to apply across all four nations. Scottish Brexit Minister Mike Russell said the comments showed the cat is out of the bag when it comes to Downing Street's intentions. He said, The Tories have now made it crystal clear they want to take control of some of these devolved powers as part of their plan for a disastrous hard Brexit outside the EU single market and customs union. This raises some very troubling questions for issues such as food standards and environmental protection. And if, for example, a proposed future trade deal involved healthcare, could Scotland be forced down the same route as England and made to open up our health service to private providers? We have made clear that we are not opposed in principle to common frameworks where a case can be made, but these must be agreed on the basis of genuine mutual consent. What happens to the powers of the Scottish Parliament, which are currently subject to EU law, must be for Holyrood to decide and not Westminster. Mrs May will address the Scottish Conservative Party conference later this week, where last year she pledged to rewrite the devolution settlement after Brexit. The latest row comes as Mr Corbyn sets out his party's Brexit position in a major speech in Coventry today, where he will insist it does not inevitably spell doom for our country. Arguing Britain needs a bespoke relationship of its own with the EU, he will call for a new and strong relationship with the single market that includes full tariff-free access and a floor under existing rights, standards and protections. He will add that new relationship would need to ensure we can deliver our ambitions economic programme, take the essential steps to upgrade and transform our economy and build an economy for the 21st century that works for the many, not the few. So we would also seek to negotiate protections, clarifications or exemptions where necessary in relation to privatisation and public service competition directives, state aid and procurement rules and the posted workers directive. Mr Corbyn is expected to back entering a customs union with the EU 
but now faces a growing revolt from within his own ranks over claims he is not going far enough. An alliance of more than 80 senior figures called on Mr Corbyn to back staying in the single market for the sake of building a better Britain. They said parliamentary arithmetic meant the UK's continued participating in a customs union and the single market is now in the Labour Party's hands. Meanwhile, Scottish leader Richard Leonard will come under similar pressure at his first party conference next week, as 10 constituency Labour Party's CLPs demanded he back remaining in the single market. Edinburgh South MP Ian Murray, who signed the statement alongside other Scottish politicians, including Glasgow City Council Labour leader, Councillor Frank McAvity, said party members in his CLP were making their voices heard. He added, Given the strength of feeling among ordinary members, it's vital that we debate this at conference. If we are to leave the EU, the least worst option for limiting the damage caused by Brexit is to remain as a participant in the single market and customs union. This article by Alistair Grant. Remember, you no longer need to receive a weekly digest service on tape, but can in fact listen to more daily content online via www.qandreview.com slash free podcasts, accessible on your computer or mobile device. Time running out for Theresa May to get Nicola Sturgeon on side with Brexit Bill. An article by Michael Settle, published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday the 27th of February 2018. Time is running out. There are just 18 working days left for Theresa May to convince Nicola Sturgeon that her flagship Brexit bill is not a power grab. March the 22nd is the deadline by when the UK government will have to have amended its EU withdrawal bill in the House of Lords to satisfy its critics. David Liddington, the PM's right-hand man, suggested the UK government had moved significantly to allay Edinburgh's fears, namely that there would be a presumption of devolution on the powers returning from Brussels post-Brexit. A considerable offer, insisted Number 10, given the initial position was all powers had first to go through Westminster. The only thing is that Whitehall now wants a safety break before common UK-wide frameworks are agreed so that there is no cross-border divergence on rules and regulations which could harm the country's internal market. Yet this is not acceptable to the First Minister and her colleagues, who still see this as another means of restricting the devolution settlement. It all boils down to where real political power lies, Westminster or Holyrood. So, having moved, the question now is, will Mrs May move further? If she did... It would be a major climb down and yet it would remove the threat of a constitutional crisis, i.e. Whitehall pressing on with its bill in the teeth of Holyrood and probably Cardiff Bay's opposition. From a constitutional viewpoint, this would not look good, Westminster riding roughshod over the wishes of the Scottish Parliament. A boost to the nationalist desire to nudge Scottish public opinion in favour of a second independence referendum. Interestingly, doubts now appear to be gathering in the minds of Whitehall insiders that just perhaps Miss Sturgeon will not come round. One source close to the FM insisted she would not budge. 
Mr. Liddington intriguingly raised the prospect for the first time on Monday that if there were no agreement, then the UK government would put in place protection for British businesses, but without any detail of what that protection would be. In other words, Whitehall is contingency planning. If Miss Sturgeon is still digging her heels in come March the 22nd, then it looks inevitable that later in the year, once the final Brexit deal materialises, she will demand a second vote on Scotland's future. Of course, the PM has made clear she won't grant one, but if the SNP won a majority in the Holyrood elections in 2021, the die would be cast in the ref too. The Herald Scotland, on Thursday the 8th of March 2018, Politics Section. Nicola Sturgeon interview, even as First Minister, men try to explain politics to me. This is an exclusive article by features writer and columnist Marianne Taylor. It's an irony that doesn't escape Nicola Sturgeon as we discuss gender equality in her Edinburgh office. St Andrew's House, where we sit, used to be the site of a jail that imprisoned and force-fed suffragettes who demanded the right to vote at a time when women were absent from all forms of political representation. Now, just more than 100 years later, the country's female first minister is being interviewed on this very spot by a female journalist. The two ministerial advisers in the room are women. Her cabinet is gender-balanced. None of this means equality has been achieved, of course, far from it, the issue of gender politics has rarely felt more alive and engaging after an astonishing six months that has seen an outpouring of allegations of sexual abuse, harassment and sexism across all sectors of society in the aftermath of the Harvey Weinstein scandal. We've also seen the creation of hugely influential global movements such as Me Too and Time's Up to facilitate action and give young women in particular a voice while the unprecedented debate around male behaviour continues. Sturgeon's party has not been immune. The day after we meet, MSP Mark MacDonald, a former childcare minister, resigned from the SNP after an investigation found he had harassed two women and exploited his position. She has urged him to resign as an MSP. But does the First Minister believe we are at a watershed moment in terms of societal change? I hope so, but I think it's too early to say, she says. There's been a powerful movement over the last few months that has sometimes been quite difficult to live through as a woman. All of us have been facing up to things we've accepted for too long, realising that we cannot go on accepting them. But I also feel we've got to watch out for that we don't get into a situation where too much of the responsibility for changing society is put on women's shoulders. Having suffered some of this behaviour for so long, the responsibility seems to be on women to come forward and talk about it and relive it. Women should be supported in doing that, but they shouldn't be criticised for not doing it. This is about men's behaviour. Not all men, but largely men. The responsibility should be on men to change. Men have to be part of the solution. I don't think it's going to change immediately, but it has to translate into a fundamental change and a watershed moment. Otherwise, what a lot of women will have experienced over the last few months will have been for nothing. Last week, a survey of Holyrood staff, including MSPs, found that almost a third of women had experienced harassment or sexism at work. A woman who started out as a teenage activist in Ayrshire in the 1980s and came through the ranks in the early days of Scottish Parliament, it's hard to imagine that Sturgeon doesn't have personal experience. I don't think there's a woman alive who hasn't experienced something of it. It'll be on a spectrum of behaviour, but that does not mean what you would describe as one end of the spectrum is a trivial or unimportant. 
For me, it is manifested as a range of things. Comments, what many guys would think of as jokes. When I was elected to Holyrood, there were more women than there were in Westminster, but it's still a very male environment. It can feel difficult when you're sitting there and a guy makes what he thinks is a throwaway comment to say, hold on, that's not acceptable, because as a woman you're made to feel prissy that you have no sense of humour. I'd struggle to point to a particular instance of overt discrimination I experienced, but looking back, it was the attitudes and perceptions of women, the way you were spoken about and judged, and that's still true to this day. You're still judged and talked about differently than men. Back then, the obvious manifestation was that I was completely surrounded by middle-aged men. I was a rarity. Indeed, Sturgeon says that as a young woman cutting her teeth in what was still very much a man's world, she often felt under pressure to fit in with masculine behaviour stereotypes. You start to adopt, unconsciously, behaviours, the stance, the approach, she recalls. It leads you to be more adversarial and aggressive in your approach, and as a young woman behaving like the men behave, it inevitably leads to people seeing you as taking yourself far too seriously. It's a no-win situation, and you quickly realise this. If you behave in the way people expect women to behave, the danger is you're treated as not being serious enough. If you emulate the behaviours of the men around you, you're accused of not being feminine. It's a position that many women of all ages and backgrounds across all employment sectors will doubtless recognise, and Sturgeon says over the years she has gradually learned to embrace her own style of politics. The older I've got, the more experienced I've become, the more you learn to be yourself. You gain a bit more confidence. If I'm ever asked to impart advice to younger women, particularly in politics, but more generally too, the first thing I say is this, just be yourself. Women are not one homogenous group. We're all individuals and having the confidence and ability to be who you are and follow the path you want to take is the most important thing. Though she says it happens less frequently these days, the First Minister still walks into rooms where she's the only woman or in a distinct minority. Despite being the leader of the country, I wonder if she's still subject to mansplaining. Oh God, yes, she laughs. Even as First Minister, I get men trying to explain politics to me. I like to think most guys mean well when they do it, but it's definitely still a thing. To be fair, lots of guys are much more conscious now of how they behave, but, dare I say it, there's still a lot of dinosaurs out there. It's something she may well have discussed with defeated presidential candidate and former US Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, whom she met in New York last year when both took part in the Women in the World conference. A picture of the pair sits on the sideboard in Sturgeon's office. Born in Irvine in 1970, the year of the Equal Pay Act, Sturgeon credits her mother Joan for always telling me to do whatever I wanted, regardless of gender. On joining the SNP, she says she was inspired by the strong female role models who'd come before her, the likes of Winnie and Margaret Ewing, Margot MacDonald and Rosanna Cunningham. She is the role model now, of course, Scotland's first female First Minister, one of the relatively few female heads of government around the world. Sturgeon admits it's a huge responsibility, and she clearly feels it keenly, admitting to being overcome during the first few days of her tenure when she became aware of the high number of women and girls who had contacted her to say it meant something to them. Suddenly you're aware of the mistakes you make, the things you get wrong, and obviously you will get things wrong. There will be people out there who point to that and say it tells you a woman can't do the job, she says. But this is a very special position to be in. And one of the best bits of my job is getting to talk to wee girls and encouraging them to be what they want to be. Among the wee girls Sturgeon feels a particular responsibility to is her 11-year-old niece, Harriet. The First Minister refers to her often during our conversation, particularly when we discuss the impact of social media on girls and women and issues around body image. I was with Harriet last night, and her consciousness about how she looks and what she wears is far greater than when I was that age. 
She also worries about the frustrating lack of progress in areas such as equal pay and representation. The gender pay gap in the UK currently sits at 18%, highlighting that although it's been illegal to pay people unequally based on gender for almost half a century, economic parity is still a long way off. And despite making up more than half the population, 51%, women are still underrepresented in Holyrood and Westminster, woefully so when it comes to senior positions in industry. This is one of the reasons Sturgeon is extending the First Mentor initiative, which offers a young woman aged 18 to 23 the chance to be personally mentored by her. She has called on other women in leadership roles to offer the same opportunity. The First Minister is also in favour of using legislation to help redress inequalities, but admits wider cultural change will also be vital if women are ever to be fairly paid, represented and respected in society. I would love to think we didn't need any of that legislation, but the experience of my lifetime is that you do because voluntary change does not happen quickly enough, she explains. We've got to look at how we accelerate the process, whether it's on equal pay or representation. For people who don't want that, the challenge goes back to them. How can we accelerate the pace of change in a different way? We simply cannot be sitting here in 10 or 20 years' time and for things not to have changed. My niece is 11. If we are still sitting here talking about these things when she's a young woman, then we'll have failed another generation, and that's not good enough. In a bid to tackle some of these issues, Sturgeon set up a non-party advisory council on women and girls at the end of last year, chaired by Young Scot Chief Executive Louise MacDonald. Members of the panel include Dr Catherine Calderwood, Scotland's Chief Medical Officer, former National Theatre of Scotland Creative Director Vicky Featherstone, campaigning barrister Dame Helena Kennedy, and Women 5050 co-founder Talat Yacoub. It's an incredibly powerful panel, says the First Minister. There's a real sense that it can be a catalyst for change, and I'm very hopeful that it will be pivotal in pushing forward some of these areas we've been talking about. I would also say that I went to their first meeting, and this is not a group of women who are going to let me off the hook. This was an exclusive article by features writer and columnist Marianne Taylor. This article from the Herald Scotland Business on the 6th of March 2018. Bank of businessman Mike Wilson gets £40 million from sale of Yukos Subsea Systems. This article by business correspondent Kevin Scott. Mike Wilson, the founder of Yukos Subsea Systems, has reaped nearly £40 million upon the sale of his business to US Group. Oceaneering International. Separately, drilling and engineering contractor KCA Dutag has become the second largest international owner and operator of land rigs in the Middle East after acquiring the Omani and Saudi Arabian assets of Dalma Energy in a deal with an enterprise value of $660 million or £476 million. New York-based Oceaneering International has paid £50 million for UCOs, in which Mr Wilson had a 75% stake, which appears to be valued £37.5 million. Mr Wilson established Aberdeen-based UCOs in 1996, growing it to a £28 million business. After expanding beyond Scotland into the US, Baltics and Asia in recent years, a number of directors in the business also own shares at the time of its largest accounts. Yukos employed 39 staff. It is understood all staff will receive a bonus. Speaking after the deal was concluded, Mr Wilson said this is a 
strategic opportunity for our customers and our employees. Oceaneering has outstanding people, a global presence, innovative technologies and diversified services and products. Together we can establish a stronger platform to take on even larger and higher profile projects in the renewables and oil and gas industries. New York listed the Oceaneering International as a global provider of engineering services and products, primarily to the offshore energy industry. The group, which has annual revenue of £1.9 billion or £1.4 billion, also deserves the defence, entertainment and aerospace industries. Roderick Larson, Chief Executive of Oceaneering, said the deal offered Oceaneering an opportunity to expand its service line capabilities and grow market position within the offshore renewable energy market. The addition of UCOS reflects our commitment to expand into the adjacent renewable energy market to more comprehensively serve the offshore energy industry. Oceaneering said UCOS could contribute to its 2018 airings and its future results will be reported through Oceaneering's subsea project segment. In the year at the end of March 2017, UCOS more than doubled revenue to £28 million, a profit surge of £6.8 million from 700000 the previous year. Following this period, Mr Wilson appointed Mark Gillespie as managing director in order to focus his own attention on developing the group's technology. The company provides a range of engineering, technical equipment, hire, fabrication and manpower services, including vessels, ROVs, remotely operated underwater vehicle, and survey services, also based in Aberdeen, KCA, Dutag, will pay Dalma's shareholders $100 million in cash and provide an equity shareholding and approximately 22% of the enlarged KCAD group, valued at $220 million, with KCA Dutag taking on $340 million in debt. It takes the group's land rig count to 83, with 46 in the Middle East, 28 in which are at Oman and 9 in Saudi Arabia. Nori McKay, chief executive of KCAN, said the acquisition of Dalma's operations in Saudi Arabia and Oman will significantly strengthen our foothold in the Middle East and provide us with a stronger platform to develop and grow our business in what is an exceptionally attractive region. KCAD had revenue of more than $1.16 billion last year and Dalma's businessman being acquired had revenue of $312 million. Another Aberdeen businessman, well-managed specialist exceed has announced a record-breaking start to 2018, amassing a number of international contract wins, totalling about £18 million, with several contracts already underway. 200 staff have been employed across the company so far this year. This article by business correspondent Kevin Scott. This article from the Herald on Monday the 5th of March 2018. Business. Miller and Bryce defies tough conditions to build in the West. This article by Scott Wright. Miller and Bryce, the conveyancing and land search specialist, has branched out from its native Leith for the first time 
in its 140-year history, defying challenging conditions in the residential and commercial property sectors. Managing Director Richard Hepburn said the firm made the move to break out of its traditional East of Scotland heartland to demonstrate its commitment to its clients in the West of Scotland. Mr Hepburn, who joined Leith-based Miller and Bryce last year, concedes the firm has made the investment at a time when the uncertainty brought by the Brexit vote is continuing to hold back decisions in the commercial property market. It also comes as parts of the residential property sector continued to be challenged by the move to the Land and Buildings Transaction Tax, which has been credited with dampening sales towards the upper end of the market. Mr Hepburn said the residential market, where it derives the bulk of its business, is currently hard to read, noting that while property prices are rising, agents and solicitors report that the stock of houses they have for sale are down versus traditional levels. There could be reasons for that, Mr Hepburn said. Some of them will cite things like LBTT, which has surpassed some parts of the market, whereas it might have benefited other parts of the market. Commercial property is obviously also partly impacted by people's reticence around what might be happening with Brexit in terms of long-term investment decisions. Some of those are perhaps being delayed. It's very hard to read. There's a lot of quite big political external factors just now that can have an impact on markets in different ways. Commenting on the rationale behind the Glasgow move, Mr Hepburn said he realised we were a bit underweight in Glasgow and the West relative to the rest of Scotland. He noted, I think when you dig into it, there are a number of reasons why. It is probably partly because of that traditional Edinburgh-Glasgow focus. We have probably been regarded as being an East Coast-focused firm, although we do certainly have lots of West Coast clients. I talk to other professional services, businesses like ours, and I just think you need a presence in Glasgow as well to be closer to the market to just show you are taking the differences in the East and West markets seriously. The Glasgow office is led by sales and marketing director Debbie Welsh, who joined Miller and Bryce from Envoy International earlier this year. Ms Welsh said, We need to have a base over in the West Coast to show that we are here, that we are on the doorstep and not 60 miles across the country, she said. Although it is quite a small area, there is quite a big difference in how businesses operate. On that point, Mr Hepburn observed that one of the biggest differences is that the market in Glasgow is more major estate agency driven. In contrast, he said, the sales of homes in Edinburgh and elsewhere around Scotland are led more by firms of solicitors. There are currently seven sales and marketing staff attached to Glasgow office who largely work in the field with the base used to offer clients seminars and training workshops. In total, the firm has more than 100 searchers and technical support staff who support the property sector, be it in the buying or selling of properties, conveyance, land search or finance. Mr Hepburn said there is potential to add further branches in future, but for the time being the objective is consolidation at its two offices. A big area of focus for the firm at present is land reform, chiefly the drive from the Scottish Government to have every property and piece of land put on the land register by 2024. Miller and Bryce is supporting lawyers and landowners in the process 
which has the aim of moving land titles from a textual register on to a map-based register which describes Scotland. Mr Hepburn said, What it is opening up are areas of business where specialist expertise is important because you're talking about some titles which have been on this text register for hundreds of years. They are having to be digitally mapped effectively and described in a different way. He added that the firm had been hiring skilled staff from organisations such as Registers of Scotland and Ordnance Survey to provide these services. You're combining old search skills with modern digital mapping capability, Mr Hepburn said. This article by Scott Wright. <laughs>